This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, fabulous guest, Dennis Ban, and what a story do we have to share. Dennis, without giving it away, you'll hear it in a few minutes, has a remarkable narrative about how he discovered his Judaism as a teenager through extraordinarily unusual means and what that journey has been like for him in the many years since. In addition, he is one of the most acclaimed venture capitalists in Israel as a managing director of Our Crowd, the world-renowned fund founded by John Medved, and he is at the heart of the Startup Nation story as well. So really, this is kind of like two fantastic plots in one when we speak about Dennis Band's life, both his personal Jewish growth and his professional trajectory over the last number of years. I'm very excited to introduce you to Dennis. Interestingly enough, as a philanthropic venture and as an additional arena of his interest, Dennis is a partner with last week's guest, Jay Schultz, on the Am Yisrael Foundation, revitalizing the Anglo Aliyah scene in Tel Aviv, offering a tremendous number of programs to Olim, to immigrants to Israel, as well as native Israelis in the arts and politics, Jewish enrichment, Shabbat, so many different other niche areas. We don't speak that much about it in this interview because we covered that extensively when we spoke with Jay and also Dennis had enough in his own unique portfolio to keep us busy for the entire hour and really could have gone much beyond. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it may be. Please spread the word so that others may do so as well. Comments or suggestions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Jewish Traveler and Our Crowd Managing Director, Dennis Ban. We are here with Dennis Ban, the managing or a managing partner at Our Crowd, which is the largest venture capital firm in Israel, an amazing, amazing firm. Uh, but Dennis also has an incredible personal story, a Jewish odyssey to go with his remarkable professional portfolio. And uh, we're very excited to explore both of those today. How are you, Dennis? Great. Fantastic. Wonderful. Now, listeners will hear that I'm pronouncing his name Dennis, but the truth is his name is spelled D-E-N-E-S. So his Dean's Dennis, you know, he's not American. So I, you know, my, my pronunciations are really kind of a bastardization of what it actually is supposed to be. Dennis, could you give us like the authentic sound of the name? Sure. So in Hungarian, it will be called Danish. Danish. Almost like a Danish, but it's in, it's Hungarian, so it's a Danish. There we go. Danish. I lo- look, it's we're recording it around breakfast time. For me, I for you, you're already late in the afternoon, but for me, it's breakfast time. I'm I have not eaten breakfast. So if I keep pronouncing your name the correct way, I will I'll probably get pretty hungry. So Danish, are you from Hungary? Correct. I was born in Budapest. Now, I know one word in Hungarian. The word is utana. 
utána. Yes. Uh, you mean going after someone? Yes. Like after? Okay. That's the only word I know. Why do I know that word? It's, it's not the word that usually people say. <laughs> I used to work with a guy part-time in a, a kind of a side gig that I was doing. And he was of Hungarian origin. He was American, but he, but he actually ran all kinds of trips, like heritage trips to Hungary. And he would speak to, you know, Hungarian to a lot of different people back, back home. He was always saying that word, like, Utana, like kind of like next, like onward, like, and uh, that's the only word I know. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so uh, my, my, that is my vocabulary, extensive vocabulary of one word. So tell me a little bit about your background in Hungary. Obviously, Hungary was a, a communist country for a long time. And obviously, it's a complicated relationship with Jewish history and was uh, decimated at the end of the Holocaust in 44. So what, what's kind of your family's background and, and your background? Sure. So, you know, maybe I just got in the middle. So I, I was 13 years old in, and actually I was playing professional water polo in Germany and I got into a fight with another guy actually from my own team. We started fist fighting in the water and I punched him in the face. He also punched me in the face a couple of times. And then I shouted at him that he is a dirty Jew. Actually, I said it a bit less... Uh, uh, sophisticatedly, but I think it's in a podcast. Um, I have to make sure that, you know, I'm using the correct word, but something something along those lines, at, at least the dirty Jew. And the, and the coach heard it and he told my father when he picked me up at the airport back in Budapest. And on the way home, my father told me that, son, two things. One, never use the F word or the D word. And especially don't say F Jew because you are also one. Wow. So that's the way I found out I was a Jew. Uh, I was 13 years old. So I guess probably most of the listeners had a bar mitzvah. You had so a bar mitzvah. You're Jewish. Um, I, this was my bar mitzvah present from my parents. Right. Unbelievable. Well, for, first of all, who won that fight, by the way? I think it was pretty much, uh, pretty much undecided. I <laughs> but I definitely won big time uh, in the, on the long term. You won the long term. Yeah, it was worth getting into the, the long, fight. Long term, yeah. So, yeah. so obviously that indicates that your family was not, you know, raising you as very Jewish, Jewish at all. We had a feast on Yom Kippur usually. So where where did this all come from? What was the origin of the actual family? Why was your Judaism concealed to that degree? So. Later on, uh, I found out that all my four grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And it, it was probably 50% a miracle that my parents married, you know, because they both were Jewish and all the grandparents were Jewish. But once I found I was Jewish, it's very interesting. I found that actually most of my parents' friends, socially, they were, they were, they were Jews. So it was interesting that, that, that they kept socially Jewish, just, you know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know Yom Kippur. I didn't know Hanukkah. I didn't know Pesach. I don't know anything, literally. I had, we had a Christmas tree and Santa Claus and Passover, but not Passover, like Eastern egg. You know, we got Eastern eggs on, at the beginning of April. So did they, did they raise you with any kind of religion or that was just sort of like a general cultural thing? General cultural thing. Oh, don't forget that also this is Hungary in the 1980s which that whatever the Holocaust didn't kill, uh, communism did. Right. So whatever left, the communism killed. So right. after the Holocaust, your grandparents stayed in Hungary, it sounds like, all four of them. Um, Correct. And I guess they made a conscious choice to 
hide their Jewish identity. Correct. Correct. They did. I mean, I mean, if I fast forward a story, after I sold one of my companies, when I was 30, I decided to explore my Jewish roots and I went to Israel. And I went, I decided to go to actually to yeshiva after some yeshiva hopping, shopping. And the first year, in the summer after the first year yeshiva, I went home to Budapest to see my father. And he gave me a box. Now, he, he hated the whole thing. I mean, he was, I, I did everything exact opposite as he imagined. You know, my son, who was like a successful businessman and this and that. And now he goes back. Basically, he goes against the tradition of our family, which is very, from generation to generation, we left Judaism. You know, my great-grandparents were maybe Orthodox and my great-grandparents my great, my became Reformed and, and, and then they gave up everything. And my father, basically, and, and then I don't even know if he's Jewish, right? I just followed the exact uh, track of how to, how to lose Judaism, right? And here I am and going against the tradition. So he was very upset, but he just moved apartments. And he gave me a box that he found. And in that box, when I opened it, I found all the papers for 250 years back of my grandparents. And the, one of the first things that I found, which was very interesting, that my grandfather, my father's father, I found his school grades. And not that his grades were so great, but where they came from, rabbinic school. He finished rabbinic school, my grandfather. I never knew. He was actually, and I found his diary as well where he lived in 1933 he left rabbinic school and he became an illegal communist which was at that time hidden like they had to hide it was illegal so he was hiding communist in the 1930s until basically a war the war broke out and then he became a hiding jew so basically in, in like 10 years of his life he was hiding first as a communist and then a jew and then when the russians the soviet army liberated hungary he was in joy and he, he, he joined the Communist Party and became a totally believer that this is going to be the new Messiah. And he became a philosophy professor at the, at the university. Just, I, I, I call him that he, he maybe, he, he stayed like a rabbi, just the, 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 the content was a little bit different. He was a believer till the end. Right, yeah. Did you have a relationship with your grandparents? Unfortunately, he died when I was, my father's father died when I was, uh, when I was three years old, so no. Um, on, on the other, on the other side, on my mother's side, yes, my mother's mother is still alive. She's ninety-three, Baruch Hashem, and I Skype with her every every day, and she is fantastic. Did your grandfather, on your father's side, that you know of, did he ever become disillusioned with communism when he saw how it actually played out in the world, or he was a believer till the end? I think he was a believer in the end, but I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know that much. I mean, my father was an anti-communist, so, you know, so he went, he, he respected his father very much, but he was totally like a, a revolutionary, uh, as much as you could be a revolutionary in Hungary. And I think he would have been in prison if it wasn't his grandfather, his father that, you know. Protection. They protected him. I, I know that for, a, that I know for a fact. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if my, my grandfather ever, deep, if he, I'm, I'm sure if, if he's a normal, smart person and I, I hope he was. I mean, I'm sure internally you must have real doubts about, you know, if you read Solzhenitsyn or any other, or Sharansky, you know the truth. Absolutely. So I want to go back to that moment when you were 13 years old and you get off the plane 
your father, you know, smacks you across the face <laughs> proverbially and says, you know, don't, don't curse Jews. And by the way, you are a Jew. Do you remember how you felt at that moment? So I'll be very honest. I'm, unfortunately, not really. I, I, I was, you know, th this is a, when I tell my story, that's, that's one of the questions I would ask. And I wish I remembered. I, I was obviously shocked. I didn't know what it meant. You know, first of all, I really thought that it was a curse word. So I didn't know what to do with it. And, and I mean, luckily at that time, I didn't have to deal with it because it wasn't out there. Nobody ever asked or uh, we, we it was never a question, you know, I'm in school, you know, nobody knew who was a Jew or not. Uh, and it had no absolutely zero effect on my life until the year after when uh, my father's as, as good Jewish parents, they put me into a private Christian school and then I had to deal with it. So do you remember at least at that point did you start resenting that label or did you say, you know, okay, if that's me, did you start becoming sensitive to anti-Semitism? No, I resonated. I, I, I was ashamed of it. I, I was partly ashamed of it. I mean, I, I, I must admit. I mean, I, I never lied about it, especially because a, a year later, literally a year later, I went to a, a Christian school and there I had to be on basically on class one. In the first class, you know, they, the, everybody was like, there are the Catholics, you're going to Catholic class and, and then you, and there is the class for Protestants and then there were the three Jews. And I think that's how, by the way, anti-Semitism is because there were not enough Jews to have a rabbi come in to the class. So the first class, twice a week, we had a, we had a break for a whole hour and every, all, the, all the other kids had to go to class. <laughs> So, which was, I think, is is that's how anti-Semitism we built, basically. You know, we were playing soccer outside, and all the others were like, "It's like in prison where they sometimes give the kosher people better food." <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, but I really was an atheist, so I didn't care. And yeah, I mean, that's that's what that, that's what. Did that's you get teased a lot in high school? A little bit, a little bit. No, no, I, I got in. I, I was beaten up a couple of times because I was a Jew, but not, you know, not majorly. Just I don't think it was because I was a Jew. It was probably something else. But then they threw at me that F Jew. I, I, I got it back what I said, but not. It's not because I. I don't think it because I was a Jew because of just who I was, and then just throw it at me. Did you keep playing water polo? No, I, I stopped water polo when I started my high school studies. So what did you start to do? I guess you graduated high school, and again, Judaism wasn't. A part of your life still it just was like a fact in the background and you said you were an atheist and i guess you had dreams of making it in the world of capitalism after the fall of communism i guess the economy opened right. up and where did your life take you so actually i moved to sweden i did my mba in sweden uh so i i, I lived in sweden for four years that was after college no, no, no. So that was direct after high school. So after the direct after the Christian high school, I, I moved to I, I moved to Sweden, and I was a musician. So I played in blues and jazz bands, and I and I and I saved some money. What do you play? I played the harmonica, the blues harmonica, blues harp. Cool. Blues harmonica. Yeah, you can look it up. It's on YouTube. I was, I was going to ask for a live demo, but okay. Yeah, well, uh, we can if you want to. At the end, if you're still with me, so. I saved some money up and I was always kind of, I had a spiritual craving in me. So I had, I had this duality. I wanted to make money, I wanted to be successful. And then I wanted to, I, I always thought that there is something much bigger, which I didn't call it God or nature, or whatever, but something, we, I didn't even know the word really spirituality, but there was something bigger. I was always looking. 
And, you know, by the way, like after yeshiva, I put together, I remember I, I put, when I, when I first put down my, my shiduchim, my marriage, what is it called? My dating uh, profile, I described myself as a yippie, which was a combination of a yuppie and a hippie, right? Because I had this duality in me always. I was a, I was a yop, I wanted to have, be a kind of a yuppie. I was kind of attracted to the yuppiness, which means be successful. And, uh, but at the same time, I had this very strong hippie part in me. And when I was 19, after first year of, of college, I had this little savings from the musical career. And then I decided to explore spirituality. And this is when I had my really my first trip. As a good Jew, if you are interested in spirituality, where do you go? Obviously, you go to India, right? So I, I, you know, I went to India and that's where I really had my first real kind of spiritual experience. I was, I, I, I fell in love with Buddhism and Hindu Buddhism and Osho and, and I had a guru who was, uh, I, I hope, I just hope your, your audience is not taking notes. I mean, you, you don't stop the listening here. You know, you have to go to them. Like, <laughs> okay, you know, great having you. <laughs> everybody, okay, stay tuned for next. Uh, yeah, so I, I really had an amazing experience there. And, and then after two months, I remember I, I, I was so impressed by what I, what I felt and I, is that I told the guru that I'm, I don't want to go back to school. I want to stay here and learn you know, much more immersed into the Buddhist, Hindu Buddhist uh, ideas. And then he told me that your time hasn't come yet. You have to go home and, and, and finish your studies. My guru told me, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Incredible. Did he know you were Jewish, by the way? No. no. I mean, maybe. I, it wasn't never been, never, never. Uh, it's not one of those stories that you are a Jew, go to Israel. I, I know, you know, the Ariel Kaur and many of the other famous stories. It's, uh, it's uh, Akiva Tatz's, you know, sorry, but it's not none of, none of this. It just, he just said, we have to go and finish your studies. Did you encounter a lot of Jews there or, or a lot of Israelis? No. So this was before the Israeli kind of invasion. This was in 1994, 1995, I think 1995. So it was a bit before the Israelis started to kind of discover India. So you went back to Sweden and continued your studies. Correct. Finished my MBA. Again, nothing to do with any, uh, obviously I I learned a little bit of here and there, but nothing, no, 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 on spirituality, very open, but nothing to do with uh, Judaism in Israel. And I started my career, I I became a diplomat. So I finished my MBA. I became a diplomat for the Swedish foreign ministry, British government. So you were a Swedish citizen? Well, yeah, that's a longer story, uh, but uh, you know, I, w- I was working as a diplomat. Let's put it this way. A spy. <laughs> no, no, you say I'm, I'm a diplomat. Literally, literally, I was a diplomat. I wasn't a spy. No, I'm sorry. Sorry to disappoint the audience. No, no spy stories here. And I, while I was working already as, uh, in the, the Swedish foreign ministry, I ran their management consulting department. I, don't, I didn't ran. I, at the end, I ran. I started as a soldier, you know, last in the, in, in the hierarchy. But I, I, I won a scholarship in Cyprus. And I went there, I was there for a month. And if I was already in Cyprus, I said, you know what? I just back back to Israel. So I, I, I bought a ticket to Israel and I just went over to Israel. And that was, you know, I was 25, I came to Israel first time for a week. What was that experience? Um, mixed, I mean, obviously very interesting. I, um, I tried to explore Israel. I backpacked uh, all over the whole, the whole country. I was in 
I went to Jericho and Ramallah. I went to see the Palestinian refugee camps as well. I was a, you know, I was a, I was a good Jewish boy, which means I was a liberal lefty guy and wanted to see how the full picture of, of, of Israel. And went to Tel Aviv and all over, went to up to Tzfat. And it was amazing, amazing experience. But uh, the most important experience, thank, luckily, on Friday, I decided to go to Jerusalem. And I really, I remember clearly, I, I arrived with my backpack to Jerusalem Friday morning. I went through the Shuk, you know, the, the, the Arab market, because that's what you don't go through the Jewish uh, old city. You go through the Arab old city, obviously much more exciting. And then I came to the, what do we call, what is it in English? The Wailing Wall, I think it's called. Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, yeah. Well, Wailing Wall. Yeah, I think it's for the Wailing Wall. I was there with my, my backpack and there was a rabbi who... Well, I can tell you who that was, Rabbi Mayor Schuster. Wow, he was still, he was still around then, wow. He was, yeah, it was Mayor, Rabbi Mayor Schuster, who actually, I started a conversation with me, and he asked, you know, are you a Jew? I said, yeah, I am. I said, your mother is Jewish? Yeah, my mother is Jewish. And he says, have you ever had a feeling? I said, what do you mean? He said, you want to try it on? I said, you know, Rabbi, how much does it cost? Ah, you are a Jew, Okay. So it's free. I said, okay, give me two. So he put one on my arm and one on my hand. It wasn't exactly like this. It wasn't exactly like this. But basically, he, he put Tefillin on me. That was the first time I had Tefillin on. I was 25. And then he asked me, what am I doing tonight? And I said, Rabbi, are you asking me out? What's going on here? <laughs> and, you know, I'm... You're not my type, man. <laughs> so he said, you know, just don't worry. Just show up here at the fountain, you know, at, you know where the, the hand wash at be here at Sunset Plus half an hour and there will be a lot of young people and we go for dinner there will be a dinner so okay you know free dinner i mean i i, I like that religion you know so um and the rest is history that was my first shabbat do you remember where you went who, who you went to i 100 percent remember and by the way where i went later on five or six years later he was my Sunday. He held my head when I had my, my circumcision. I mean, my, my Brit Milan, because, you know, Americans, I don't know if I should, you can cut this off if you don't want uh, to, No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they have at least circumcision, just not maybe uh, an Orthodox way. So, you know, but Hungarians, you know, communists, we don't, you know, nothing. So, and he was under my hoopah 20 years later, or 15 years later. And he's my, basically my second father. Who is and, it? Abba and Pamela Clayman. The Clemens. Oh, the, the Clemens, sure, sure. Yeah, so it's Abba and Pamela. So Pamela... Pamela, uh, yeah, famous people. Pamela lights a candle for me every Shabbat, and Abba, and they did my Sheva Bracho, they did my... I mean, it's like, they're basically my most, you know, one of my closest families. Amazing, yeah, and they're very... Uh, they do an ama amazing amount of work with Israeli soldiers, soldiers. right, yeah. hosting and everything like that. Incredible. Uh, that's wonderful. So obviously you went back to, uh, I guess, back to Sweden or back to Hungary. You went into business, started a company. Yeah. So 25, I have this amazing Shabbat experience. Go back to, go back to Hungary uh, uh, and, and Europe. So I've been, I've been stationed in different parts of Europe, working for this management consulting part of the, for the Swedish foreign ministry. It was amazing, amazing experience. Five years later, fast forward, I had an exit. I had one of my, actually, I, first I was joining Boston Consulting Group, the BCG, but I had another company on the side, which I built and I was very lucky. The company got acquired. So I had a little bit of liquidity, started doing a little bit of real estate and started to get into tech. And 
really, I, I try to cut a, probably people, when they say I'm, I'm cutting a long story short, it usually becomes long, but I'm, I really try to cut it, cut, cut most of it. I, I started going back and forth with Israel a couple of times just for interest. And again, absolutely no interest in doing anything and in Judaism and no relationship. But when I was in Jerusalem, I, I started to kind of started learning a little bit. I went to Asia Torah, you know, it's in, it's very much, it's next to where the claim in the old city, very well situated. And, and I started to ask a little questions and I decided that after maybe a third trip, again, I'm coming for four or five days and just learn a little bit or, you know, go to Tel Aviv and go to Jerusalem, hang out with friends. And I said that there is something here. There is something here that has to be explored. But I knew how my psyche works. And I know that once I'm back, back on the plane, back to business, it's all behind me. It's, it's impossible to take time out and, and just leave your career. And again, this is before my exit. I'm, again, that's, I, it's, I, tried to, I, don't, I tried to cut out some details before this before, when, when I still have a normal work, you know, you, you, you work basically 15 hours a day, seven times a week, typical management consulting business and, uh, uh, you know, BCG McKinsey world. So what I did is actually I, I sat at the table of the claimants and I wrote to myself three letters. I wrote to my, I addressed it and I told, I left it with the claimants and I wrote the letters to myself, what I felt now, when I'm in it, in my learning, in my, in my experience. And I said, if I'm not back six months, please send me the letters, one every month. And exactly as I kind of plan, you know, imagine I went back, you know, I have my girlfriend and the world, life, you know, you, 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 sometimes you think about Israel, but no way you're going to give up your job. And you're like, you know, and a couple of things happened and the exit and this, but still it's not going to be, you know, you, you can't just leave. You just can't just pack and leave and just leaving. And, and it's so, so crazy giving up for yeshiva or something. And the first letter arrives and I, I read it and I come on, Dennis, you've really been brainwashed. I don't know what you ate there, you know, throw away the letter and the second and same thing. And the third, I decide, you know what, there is something here. I bought a ticket and I came to Israel. That was a week before actually I, it was, Probably exactly if I'm thinking about now, because it was five days before uh, Pesach. Great timing. Yeah, good timing. Yeah, to do this. Uh, and then that whole process that I went through, and I'm not going to go into you now the details again, the medical process, whatever. Um, I decided to to do it, and they did it, and I decided to to go to yeshiva. So I, I like Aish when, you know, it, it, but, but it wasn't my, you know, everyone has to find his own place. That's with, with, with work and everything. So I ran into someone who, who was in the old city from a place called Makon Yaakov, from a, from, a, from a yeshiva called Makon Yaakov, Makon Shlomo, maybe you heard, but this is Makon Yaakov, which is his brother, you know, yeshiva. And he told me that, why don't you come over to the yeshiva to check it out, which was not in the old city, much more, not as accessible. It's, it's in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And after Seder, I went over there and, and, and I just fell in love with it on day one and decided to, when I go back to Budapest, I didn't have to write any more letters to myself. I signed up to the yeshiva and then I came home and I basically terminated uh, my contract and broke up with the girl and packed up and came back to, for two years into yeshiva.
What's fascinating about Machon Yaakov, for those unfamiliar, is it's led by uh, someone who himself was a former business executive, was uh, very deeply involved in uh, large-scale mergers, and uh, you know was was living the Wall Street life as an observant Jew, but nonetheless was deeply ensconced in business. And then at a certain point decided to move to Israel and open up this institution. So I'm just wondering, Dennis, if that connection to Rabbi Jacobs, if that was a pivotal part of that synergy that you felt in that institution. 100%. I think the uniqueness with the yeshiva was that, well, I really found out later on, then I just felt it. No, I didn't rationalize. I didn't, I, I didn't understood it. I didn't understand it. But then I, but later understood it is that, by the way, I don't call it yeshiva. I call it kind of an executive MBA in men's studies. That's what I kind of call it. They only take like 12, 14 guys every year. So it's very small. After two years, they kick you out. There's no way you can stay. And the idea is not to make you into something that you are not. They, they try to show you the beauty of Judaism, but that resonates and that relevant to you. So they want you to go back to the world where you are, uh, be a, a Jew, be a, a Kiddush Hashem, you know, somebody who represents the Jewish values, be a mensch. But basically, if you are a nuclear physicist, be a nuclear physicist. If you're a doctor, be a doctor. And uh, if you are a businessman, be a businessman. But just keep Shabbat, keep kosher, learn every day, and uh, represent the Jewish values to the outside world. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a full-time learner. It doesn't have to be, you have to learn to be a rabbi, be yourself. That message, I guess, really stuck with you because you certainly did continue back into the world of the high-end business and startups and venture capital and, and so forth. I guess at some point you decided when you finished this two-year executive MBA of sorts, you decided that you wanted to stay in Israel and pursue your career there? So... I came back to Israel. First of all, I, I started doing some investments. First of all, I went to Hungary, did a sort of real estate. Then, then I started a company called Pocket Guide, which became the world's leading travel application. We, we won TechCrunch, but also in tech, they know what it is. And we, I moved the company to Silicon Valley. So I lived in, in Palo Alto. This was after Yeshiva? It's not Yeshiva. I was, I'm already religious. I'm full religious, Orthodox, Orthodox Jew, obviously modern, you know, working. And, uh, and the rabbi there, Rabbi Feldman, I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah, Mebracha, which is some of the most, one of the most special personals I, I, I met. He told me that, Dennis, we want you here, but only once you're married. You will never find a good, very unlikely you will find a good religious Jewish girl here. So you have to go back to Israel and come back with a, your wife. So, you know, I started going back and forth between the valley, between the valley and, and, uh, and, and Israel. And that's when I met someone called John Medved, who is, you know, who is probably one of the most well-known venture capitalists in Israel. And he, that's when he, he was building our crowd. Uh, and it was still in the garage. And I, I joined him and moved back to Israel. I didn't marry him, but <laughs> basically I probably spent more time with him than, you know, with, with anyone else. But yes, I met, I, I, you know, I'm a venture capitalist when it comes to business. When it came to marriage, it took me a little bit. I didn't, I wasn't really a risk taker. So. <laughs> Uh, but thank God, uh, yes. I, I say, who's I, better I, looking, I, him or Mayor Schuster, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Probably Mayor Schuster. Mayor Schuster. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and he's not even alive. But so, yes, how did, you, how did you find a girl? Did you? What were you looking for in a, 
in a spouse where you're looking for somebody who is also going to be very, you know, much out there in the world and building a career and, and things where we do, we're looking for more of a, of an anchor. So I think I found both. I'm very lucky. Actually, I'm, I've known her for a couple of years, but we were never single at the same time and you know, available or we were a different place in life. But actually funny. So I started writing a weekly blog. So I write the Divrei Torah on the parasha, but for a totally a business, being in business, psychology, philosophy, and tech into it. So it's a very kind of a unique take on the weekly portion. Actually, I'm, I'm putting out a book soon. So I'm just in discussion with a couple of publishers. A collection of your columns? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she was on it. And we haven't been in touch for a couple of years, but she was on the list. And then one day she replies with some questions on it. And I said, I don't understand this. I don't agree with, obviously don't agree with that. <laughs> with your conclusion. And I said, oh, okay, by the way, um, because I've been, I spent 70% of my time in Asia. I, was, I lived in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Japan mainly in the last uh, six years. Through our crowd. Through our crowd, yeah, through our crowd. I said, by the way, next week I'm back in Israel. Why don't we discuss it next a cup of coffee? And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> so uh, she challenged me, uh, obviously. But she is, she's also in the world of both try to combining the kind of work and, and kind of physical world and, and, and the spiritual. Because she's obviously religious and Shomer mitzvot lady, but she's been actually a professional ballet dancer. She's also about tshuva, somebody who found Judaism in late in her, I mean, or, or the religion in late in her life. She was a professional ballet dancer, with, danced with the San Francisco Ballet, went to NYU, and then she decided to come to, to Israel, exploring her Jewish, religious, Jewish roots, and then became religious. So she's an American. She's American, a Californian. I don't know if that counts. You got the hippie in you. There you go. Yeah, that, I got the hippie. I got the hippie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you guys choose to settle down? Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. Sunny downtown Tel Aviv. Wow. So I just recently uh, interviewed Jay Schultz. He's my partner. We run the, all the, this organization together. Oh, you, you're working together with them? Yeah. I had, I had a two hours total learning with him this morning. That's amazing. Okay. He, didn't, he kept you quiet in our interview. He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, make a big Well, he's ashamed of me. I, I am proud of him. He's probably ashamed of me. <laughs> That's really, really beautiful. So tell me a little bit, uh, Dennis, about your career now and a little bit about our crowd. It's, it's very well-known venture capital firm if i'm not mistaken is the, the concept is to give anyone or people with even of lesser means access to invest in israel kind of like micro investments even if you're not you know a massive wealthy uh, you know tycoon to be able to have access to the really exciting aspects of startup nation in israel is that kind of the vibe of our crowd great i think you've done done the deal i mean you're we're actually looking for a Investor, you know, maybe, you know. Don't tell me, Dennis. I think the pay is a lot better than what I'm doing now. So, uh. <laughs> no, but basically, you know, maybe just a step back because what is the problem, right? The problem is, and I think you said it right, what we see in the markets that if you invested in a company, probably everybody heard a company called Apple, right? If I was Steve Jobs and I just pitched now to the audience Apple the first time, it's still in the garage, and you invested in Apple. If you're the first investor and then you sold it when the company went public, if you invested $10,000 and you sold it at IPO, you probably it would be around $6 million. You made like 600 times your money. 
Now, investing in private companies, even even now we know Apple is a great story, but investing in cheap jobs, it wasn't easy, right? You know, it, it's 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 illiquid. There are risks with it. So not many people want to invest in the private market. So you may only invest when a company goes public, right? So if you invested when 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 the, when Apple went public, if you invested ten thousand dollars there. Again, I'm simplifying around, you would have made another 600 times your money, maybe a little bit more. Yes, you invest some $10,000 at IPO. Apple made like maybe 400, 600 times your money. Okay, hundreds of times your money, that's for sure. And, and this was true, by the way, for Microsoft. Microsoft, the IPO was even, you, you, the returns on, on, after I, post IPO was even, even bigger. So basically what we see that the value creation, historically, if you look at the 80s, 90s, is divided equally between or closely equally between private and public. So you can make money on the private markets pre-IPO and you can make very nice returns to the public. What happens in the last 10, 15 years, if you compare it, most of the value creation moved from public to private. Most of the value is created on the private markets pre-IPO. Even though the stock market has been sky high, yeah, the last, the, let's say you, you have to put the last 18 months in brackets, okay? That what's happening is crazy, right? You know, with the spec market and the public, crazy. But, but even, even with that, because let, let's look at one of the best IPOs, one of the most exciting, let's say Facebook, okay? Facebook went public at 40, 50, I can't remember exactly. Now it's maybe, I don't know, 300, let's just say that. So you made on Facebook, come on, you know, maybe like five, six times your money, okay? Five, six times your money since... 20, I think went public 2012 or 2013. It will never be, I guarantee you, and that I put my money on it, you will never make 500 times your money. In order for Facebook to match Microsoft's public returns, it has to be probably like 50 trillion US dollar valuation. And that's like three times US GDP, okay? <laughs> right? So it will never, it will never happen, okay? So you can get a nice return on the public markets, but, on the private, you, you need, if you're a sophisticated investor, whether you have half a million dollars or hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, you need to put more money into the private markets. Although the high private markets are much more volatile, right? And much more risky. Well, not volatile, but much more risky. You're right. So, but, but it comes with a price. Private markets are illiquid. It's not public markets. You can sell next moment, right? You know, you can buy Zoom shares or you know, whatever, you know, gain stuff and et cetera, you can, you can buy and you can, you can, you, and, and you have liquidity, but not the private, you know, not, not, not the private, it's much less liquid, but that's where the biggest upside is. Now, the issue is that, you know, public markets, whether it's Robin Hood or you have an interactive or uh, interactive broker or a Charles Schwab, you can get into the public markets very easily, right? How do you get into the private markets? No chance, almost no chance. If you are not Bill Gates or Peter Thiel, or, or, or you are very wealthy, you're well-connected or live in Silicon Valley, you cannot get in. And that's the problem, right? With that in mind was our crowd created. This is really John's vision, John Madvet's vision, and he's absolutely genius how he came up with this idea. And now you can put in $10,000, $50,000. Just very important because I'm not pitching your crowd, but very important that here this and you wanted to do, you have to be a, still an accredited investor. So this is not fully retail. If you don't, you, you need to be something called accredited investor. And you can't put it, you're not going to put in a hundred dollars. No, the minimum is 10,000 per deal. Yeah. Or, or 50,000 if it's a fund, but basically, yeah. It's democratic, but I would, I like to score it. And I, please, I, I don't know if I should, no, I hope nobody will quote me on that. 
it's kind of a little bit like Greek democracy, if that makes sense, right? You still have to have, but it's democratic, but it's still not- Once you're at a certain threshold. Right. So that was the idea. And, and really John's vision was, was at that time, you know, it was crazy because the regulations were still not there today. You know, there is SEC and all the regulations supporting this. But yeah, that, that really, um, basically you can put in into Masterclass, which we just invested in, or you can Uber or Lemonade, which, was, which is, we, we hit two of the best, the best IPO of 2020 was a company called Lemonade, which is an insure tech company, uh, probably many of, uh, it's an Israeli insure tech company that we invested in, and you could have put in $10,000 yeah, in that deal. And, and we have a company that the, the year before 2019, the best IPO on NASDAQ, was uh, I mean, Lemonade went uh, NYC. So, uh, so it's uh, New York Stock Exchange, uh, Beyond Meat, NASDAQ, best IPO 2019, also one of our companies. Uh, we were in Uber, we were actually both one of our companies. So you can get into these, these really amazing stories with, with as little as 10,000. Now, so when you're going into these deals, a private investor, is, if he's participating, he's obviously only getting a small, small slice of that bigger picture, but but very important what you're saying, it's a small slice, but you still get the same valuation and the same deal terms, right? Which means that you get the same protections, which again, if you invest, let's say you're an angel investor and you, and you get experts somehow, you're putting 50 or $100,000 into a deal without aggregating everybody else's strength together, you will lose protections, which is super important, anti-dilution, preemptive, wretched, whatever it is. And we, 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 are, we are professional VC investors, so we know what we're doing. And then you can come, we, we can take your and all the other 5,000 investors aggregate power to negotiate the deal. And, for, and from, from the company, when we negotiate with the company, the portfolio company, we come in with $10 million, the same as Sequoia or, or Anderson Horowitz or NEA. From their perspective, it doesn't make a difference. It's the same money. Yeah, basically. When, when an investor invests, do they pick a specific company or are they joining a fund and, you're, and, and their risk is spread across all these different investments? Great question. It's a good, I have a good Jewish answer. LVL, both. Both. That's a Rabbi Gershenfeld answer. For- yeah, that's a Rabbi Gershenfeld answer. Correct. Yeah, both. You can decide. It really depends what you want. What you want. But I think you, what you said is very, very important. You, when you come into private the markets, when you start investing, you need to diversify. You need to mitigate the risk and you do that by minimum investing. I, I always tell my investors, if you're not ready to do at least 10 deals, don't start. Unless you are like a corporate or like a strategically, you only need, you know, you want to invest in cybersecurity or quantum computing or whatever, because this is your interest. You need to build a diversified portfolio. And, and you can do a fund. By the way, we built a fund for that. So you can do 50 deals with, with even with $50,000, you can do a, you can invest in a fund with 50 deals. Like a VC mutual fund of, of sorts. Basically. Yeah. We, by the way, I love it. Yeah, uh, it, it. We call it portfolio index. It's an, basically, although it's not an index fund, but, but, it, but, but it's, it's the closest it probably VC ever tried to do an index fund. So what's your actual role? And you said you spent a lot of time in Asia. So I guess you're, you're trying to hunt the next big thing in, uh, in Hong Kong or wherever it might be. What's your role? So my role is uh, on paper, I'm a managing partner, which means I do everything from everything from deal to bringing new deals, helping the portfolio companies. But let's put it in one, like practically most of my time I spend with fundraising, bringing in some of our most critical and uh, most important investors, which are some of the biggest financial institutions. We are not only 
good for small investors, but we also been we have a track record of attracting some of the biggest, most sophisticated financial institutions, corporations, and some of the most well-known family offices around the world to invest with us. So who are investing tens of millions of dollars, not tens of thousands of dollars. And that's what I do. I mainly focused in the last couple of years, I focused on Asia. Started with China, Hong Kong, Korea, Singapore, Thailand, and now last year and a half, a lot in Japan as well. What have been some of your experiences over there and especially navigating that as a observant Jew? Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> so, um, incredible. Like it's so different, so different, both good and good and bad, right? You know, I'll tell you maybe a story. That's maybe, that be like, I, think, I think that's like a microcosm of my life, okay? So I built a relationship with, uh, with an investor. Um, I, if, if I tell the story, I can't, can't use his name. One of the most well-known Chinese investors, and, and it's not Jack Ma before. I, I, I work with Jack Ma. Are you the one who kidnapped him? or what's... <laughs> No, 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 no. no. And no comments. Like, we can't that. find him. You're like, oh, he's, he's in Israel. No, you can. He's, he's eating falafel with Dennis in Tel Aviv. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. He's, he's doing well. He's doing well, actually. I can, I can confirm that. Jack invited me to his home, and I had lunch with him, which is another story how we've made it kosher and everything. But it's a, it's a great story. And, I, and I, I brought his whole family to Israel. And by the way, we had lunch at the Clemens on the on the rooftop, uh, looking at beautiful. Yeah, yeah so uh, Abba and Pamela hosted the whole 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 Ma family. Anyway, so it's not him, but the, the investor uh, the ecosystem would know who that person is. Is one of the really most sophisticated investors. So I I had a relationship, I built a business relationship with him, and I brought him to Israel first time. And as always, I mean the the Chinese are one of the some of the most hardworking people in the world. You have your first breakfast meeting at 7 a.m., second breakfast meeting at, at 7.45 to 8.30, and then we, we had at 9 o'clock to work until 7 p.m., back-to-back meetings. At 7.30, we, we, we go for dinner, and uh, again, with clients or, or with government officials, NSF members, whatever, prime minister, et cetera, et cetera. Every single time, I make sure that they stay in Israel for Shabbat, which is, you know, after the high-tech craziness is the most low tech possible. Yeah. Right. And it's the most incredible. That, that is basically when we stem the relationship. And, and I would, I want to say we close the deal, although we don't close deals on Shabbat, but that's not the, so with this specific time, I was hosting this gentleman. Actually, we went for, for John, for John Medved uh, to, for dinner. But before that, I talked to Pamela and Abba and we said, can I have a glass of wine with, with, with him on the rooftop? So, you know, 4 p.m., you know, we went, we were looking at Kotel, for the, the, you know, Kotel, the, the old city, and we have a, a glass of Cabernet in hand. And he tells me, Dennis, listen, I've been working with you for two years. Tell me, what is this Shabbat? I mean, come on. What, what is this? And I... You know, you've been managing my money now for years, but like, come on, how can you, like a professional businessman, just turn off your phone for 24 hours when you know, or 25 actually, but you know, for when you know that anything can happen any minute. Yeah, I can reach you, I know, if I call you 4 a.m., 2 a.m., but like for, for one day, how can you do business like that? And like, what, what is this Shabbat? So how can you explain that, right? You know, and... You know, you try to say, you know, it's not turning off, but it's you're turning off. Yeah, as, as much as we are unplugging, it's more about plugging in because we're plugging in something bigger. I tried to give all these kind of 
half cliche answers. And he asked, like, how can you live in a life where you're not permitted to use your phone? And so, so I was thinking like, maybe the best way to answer is not that we are not permitted to use our phone, but we are permitted not to use our mm. phone. That makes sense, right? We have a day today where we have an incredible excuse that everybody accepts. If, because I tell him in the first day, you know, by the way, I don't work on, on Friday. On fr Friday, sunset tonight, I don't work. If you don't want to work with me, say it now. But I have actually an excuse. Imagine, I'm just thinking, if we had the holy golf day, right? A holy golf day. And I don't take, I'm sorry, sorry, Mr. Mr. But I have a holy golf day on Friday or Saturdays. So you don't come in. And, and he has this huge deal and he calls me, sorry, sir, I'm not taking my call because I have a holy golf day. And you can't, you know, I'm thinking about it. There's no other excuse in the world where you have a day of, like we can unplug for a day and, and people understand it, all right? And people respect it because even though, you know, if you don't want to do business, don't do. But if everything else, they would break. Come on, this is important. This is an important deal. I, you know, go tomorrow, a day after for two days of golfing, but today you have to do this deal, right? No, I'm not, you know, my holy... This, so we had a great dinner and everything. And I, I saw that he was like, it, it, it penetrated into his, his soul. Like he doesn't know what to do. And he goes, okay, I got it, Dennis. Let's move on. So three months later, as I was in Hong Kong and I was in 45th floor in the most gorgeous business office and we're sitting, sitting and he always, I sit and I present his portfolio and we go through and he's the most professional man. And in 59.5 minutes, he gets up and he said, thank you so much. See you next week, basically. Walks me to the door. The Chinese, by the way, always have the three ammos. They walked you through the door. They don't let you. They walk you through the elevator. The Jewish tradition as well. And he, but that, that something strange happens. He puts his hand to my shoulder. So, okay, what's going on? He never did that. And he says, I want to tell you two things. I said, okay. First, what you showed me in Israel inspired me so much. So when I came back, I had, I had to fly to Beijing meeting President Xi, the president, president of China. And, you know, he, I just came back from Israel. So I told him what I've seen, all these entrepreneurs and the Israel, the miracle story. And he was so excited about it that he wanted to, he said that I want you to write and give a speech at the National Communist Party Congress, which is watched by one billion dollars, one billion people, I want you to speak on Israel. I want you to give over what you learn on Israel. And he told me, "Dennis, can you please write my speech?" So I wrote his speech in Chinese. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know Spanish. So I wrote his speech, which was potentially was watched by one billion people plus my mother. But then he continues. I said, also, I want to tell you another thing. You know, remember our discussion about Shabbat? I said, sure. So I want you to know, since I came back, I'm keeping Shabbat. I said, what? You know, I was looking for a stone, but I have to stone him. <laughs> and he says, no, no, don't worry. I keep it on Sunday. I, since I came back. So this was in 2016. For five years, he has still kept Shabbat. I know for a fact. I mean, first of all, he's one of my biggest investors. And... I know because his colleagues tell me, first of all, I'm, I'm like, I have a, basically a picture with a, with a crown in the office now because all the rest of the people also have a day of Shabbat, you know, in, in the, because the, he, he worked, he's over 60, he worked every single day of his life, basically. And now the rest of the team also has a day because they also have to work before and now they also have a day. So they're like, whatever I need, 
you know, they, they, uh, they take know, care of you. But now, but now there's two days in a row that you can't do business with them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that I may have paid a huge price. <laughs> Correct. So, you know, that's, so that's my job basically. But that, and I think I kind of, I think summarizes my job. You, on one way, you know, representing Israel and the second you represent Judaism and that, that I deal with every single day, every single moment of my life when I'm out there, I'm representing both Israel and Judaism. And of course, it may be uh, some challenges, but I think it, 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 it feels an incredible privilege to do that. Just in closing, what's it been like for you the last 13, 14 months with travel being so restricted and especially, you know, going to the Far East where so much of this originated? What's COVID been like and how do you think it's going to change the way that we do business and, and, and change your life moving forward? So... I have a little bit different perspective on it because I got actually married three months before COVID. So it was perfect timing for many reasons, because if I had to do this alone, I, I have, I don't know how I would have, have survived. I was extremely lucky to, to be married and to, to have a partner who I, who I adore and love and have an incredible relationship. You know, according to the Jewish tradition, you have a Shana Rishona. So I don't know. I, I, I keep telling her, I don't know, but you prayed well, you know, uh, you know. The <laughs> whole world people, had to suffer for <laughs> The whole world had to suffer from it. But, 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 you know, because you wanted to have a real Shana Rishona. Because I've been, I've been literally traveling 70% of my time. Every two weeks, I was, on a, I was on a flight to Asia before. So, and I was, for 13 months, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same place, right? <laughs> So it was an incredible opportunity to build a real, real Jewish traditional, you know, according to the Jewish tradition, to build a real relationship with my wife. So that's amazing. Very, very lucky. Business-wise, you know, I'm not going to, you know, lie to you. It's, it's been very, very challenging. We actually, our crowd had the best year. And, you know, you can do a lot through Zoom with relationships that you already have. That worked. But to build new relationships been very challenging, especially in Asia, because Asia is much less transactional. Western Europe, America, you can, you know, it's basically numbers games. You know, you do this, this, bam, bam, we open up a data room, we look at it, okay, you work, okay, bam, done, yes, no. But, but, but in Asia, they want to feel you, they want to dine with you, they want to be with you, they want to understand who you are, and they do a little like 300, and it takes a year or sometimes two years until you really build a relationship with someone before they write a check. And that has been obviously very, very difficult because Zoom is, is good for a lot of things, but not to build real relationships. I think a lot of people worldwide have felt that as well. You can maintain relationships, but not so easy to inaugurate new ones. And um, I think, you know, we've all learned that there's things we can replace and we can, we can maybe be more efficient yeah. in our time. And at the same time, there's things that we can never replace without that personal touch. And, uh, you know, I think that we've all learned that around the world. So Dennis, thank you so much for your time. It's an amazing story. Um, and I, I just love that the synthesis between your personal odyssey and the business journey, which really, you know, combined together. Um, and it seems like you've really found a role that allows you to express the essence of who you are, you know, this yippie <laughs> within yourself, you know, while embracing and thriving in business. So I think it's a great example for so many others. And, uh, I'm so grateful that you joined us. It's, um, it's my honor and good luck with everything. Dennis Bain, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. 
This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.